2 Kings chapter 13. I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, jump right in. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are, Lord, so grateful for your, for your grace, Lord, in our lives, your mercy, your love. We're thankful that you love us as much as you do, and Lord, I pray that you would bless this time in your word tonight, that you would just, uh, Lord, just meet with us tonight, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so we might see the truths of Scripture and learn them and uh, internalize them and apply them and love these truths. So, Father, would you do that in our midst tonight? And, and we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, for the past... Uh, few months we have been talking about the life of Elisha. Elisha was a prophet of God found in the Old Testament and we see two major things about Elisha's life. He preached messages from God to the northern kingdom of Israel. The, the, the Jews were divided into two kingdoms at this time. There had been a civil war. He had the northern kingdom which is called Israel in the Bible and the southern kingdom which is called Judah and Elisha was a preacher a prophet to the northern kingdom. Now you need to understand, the northern kingdom had about 19 kings throughout its history, and every one of them were wicked. And so Elisha is always just preaching uh, that these kings, these leaders, the people of Israel need to repent and turn back to God. And another thing that happened in Elisha's life, not only did he preach God's message, but he performed God's miracles. God worked miracles through his life, and the miracles were intended to get people's attention so they'd listen to the message. They, they were meant to say, hey, listen up. And so we see God just doing just really mighty things through the life of Elisha. So message and miracles. That's what we see in his life. Well, now we're going to talk about the end of his life. And we're going to transition and go a different direction on Wednesday nights after this. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly what we're going to do on Wednesday nights yet, but I'll let you know soon. Uh, i got a couple different ideas of what I want to do. But this is going to end up our study on the life of Elisha. And so uh, we're going to see what the Bible says about the end of his life there in 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, just kind of an interesting tidbit. This is the first time, starting in chapter 13, verse 14, it's the first time Elisha is mentioned in 2 Kings since chapter 9, verse 1. So there are uh, what four chapters in there where uh, between uh, the mentions of Elisha, it tells the history of the kings and different things that were happening. But, but there, there are many verses where Elisha's not even mentioned. And when you look at the chronology, if you look at the different kings who reigned during that time, we know that was about a 40 to 50 year period of time. So the biblical record is silent for about 40 years of Elisha's life. We see the beginning of his ministry and the way God used him, but then there's just kind of silence over 40 years of his ministry. And then we see this picture of how God uses him at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry. So just kind of a, a quick heads up there. And I believe that 2 Kings 13 verses 14 through 21 demonstrate and illustrate for you and for me the power of a godly life. I, I want you to understand and I want you to walk away tonight understanding that a godly life has power. Or let me say it like this. God grants his power to the godly. God grants his power to the godly. Or God manifests his power through the godly. I like that better. Let's go with that one. God manifests his power through the godly. And we're going to see that uh, in Elisha's life. And so there are several lessons. If you look there in your notes, the handout that we've given you, several lessons that we learn uh, from the end of Elisha's life. And we're just going to kind of make some, some comments and go through it. And at the end of the, our time, we'll have some Q&A uh, opportunities for you. So if you have a question, just jot it down there on your notes. And we get to the end, you, you can ask me. Uh, any question that you have. So, let's uh, begin by looking at the first lesson we learn from the end of Elisha's life. You ready for it? This, this is big. Godly people get sick. And you say, wait, why would you even say that? Because Elisha was a man of God. And you know what it says about Elisha there in chapter 13, verse 14? Now, when Elisha had what? Fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. And it's just important just to stop there for a moment and say, godly people do get sick. Because 
there is a false teaching that has really permeated American Christianity that says that it's never God's will for you to get sick. It's called the health and wealth gospel. That God always wants you well, and God always wants you rich. And, and this, this message is, of course, appealing to many folks because they want to be well and they want to be rich, right? And so they want to come and hear someone tell them how they can be well all the time and be rich all of the, all of the time. The problem is, it's, a, it's an unbiblical message. And you know that by simply looking at verses like this. Elisha was sick. He was a man of God, and yet he was sick. Now, let's just talk for a moment about healing when it comes to God and, and, and God's power to heal. If you look there in your notes, God, he has the power to heal and the wisdom to know what's best. In other words, the timing, the way to heal, the manner of healing, he knows all of that. He's, he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. So we pray knowing that. When, when you pray for someone's healing, which, by the way, is always appropriate. If you know someone that is sick, if you know someone that is hurting, has some physical malady in their life or emotional malady in their life, you, you should pray for them. That, that God tells us to ask Him for things, right? He says, you have not because you ask not. And we see in James, we are, we are given some instructions as to how to pray for those who are sick. And so we should boldly go to God and pray for healing because God is powerful and He can flat heal folks, right? I mean, He can. I mean, nothing is impossible with God. And He's wise. He knows the best way to do it, the best timing. You see, God knows the end from the beginning. He sees everything from a big picture perspective. And He knows how it's all going to play out and how it all should play out. And He is orchestrating all of that. So we, we pray knowing that He knows what's best. And here's the reality. Sometimes God heals in time. Someone is sick in the here and now. And God supernaturally or through, through medicine heals them. They are healed of their sickness, healed of their disease here in time. And sometimes he heals in eternity. That's what he does with Elisha. Look what it says there. It says, Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. He was never going to get over this illness in time. He was not going to recover from this illness. It was, God, it was not God's will, will to heal him of this illness. The illness was the illness that was going to kill him. But I would submit to you that his death was not an ending. It was a transition into life with his God in that wonderful place called heaven. And what is healing if it's not that? Right? When you go to heaven and you're with God forever and ever, that's healing. So sometimes God heals in time, and we should pray that God would heal in time. But sometimes God heals in eternity, which, by the way, it's important that, that, that a, an emphasis on physical healing not be the major emphasis coming from any church. Now, we need to pray for healing. But if it's the main message people are getting, then something is askew. Because listen to this. If you pray for someone to get healed and they get healed, they're healed of their sickness, guess what? They're going to get sick again. Have you, have you seen anyone beat death? You know, I, you, you hear people talk about different you know, surveys and different, uh, you know, different thing, types of research. And you talk about, you know, you see things like the number one killer of men and the number one killer of women. You know, if we figure out what the number one is, guess what? Something else is going to be number one. Have you thought about that? If we heal whatever's on the top of the list, then whatever's number two is now number one. Right? I mean, we, ha we haven't figured out how to cheat death yet, have we? So yes, we want people to be healed in time, but listen to me. If we focus on their physical healing, but not their spiritual healing, then they may get well and then face their mortality later on down the road and die and go to hell. Right? And then you're talking about eternity separated from God. So, yes, we pray for physical healing. Pray boldly for supernatural intervention of God in people's lives. But we also want to make sure the number one message coming from our church is this. 
The gospel is the good news that you can be reconciled to a holy God and your soul be healed, your sins be forgiven, so one day you will go to be with God in heaven forever. That's the main message. We've got to prepare people for their mortality because whether they're healed or not, they're still mortal. I'm still mortal, right? And so we just need to just kind of pause for a second and say there's a lot of teaching that just doesn't line up with this verse in American Christianity. And some of them sell a lot of books in Christian bookstores. And they look real nice on TV. They smile big, real big smiles. They dress in nice suits and have nice ties. And, and, and they're, they're very compelling speakers. And they're engaging. And they make you feel good and make you feel positive. But what they're saying is biblically inaccurate. And it is damning people to that awful place called hell. I better move on because I'm starting to, get, starting to feel irritated. And I don't preach good when I'm irritated, all right? You don't, want, you don't want me to preach angry, all right? But godly people get sick, amen? They do. We pray for healing, but we trust that God's powerful and God is all-knowing, and we trust Him with that. And you say, Wade, what's going on here? Elisha was sick, and God healed him in eternity, and that is awesome. Godly people get sick. So, by the way, listen to me. Someone may get sick, and it not be God punishing them. You, you, some people think, well, and, and I think the health and wealth gospel teaches this, that, well, if you're sick, you must be doing something wrong. Like, if you're sick, well, what, what'd you do? Evaluate your life. Where'd you blow it, right? And people think, well, God must be punishing me. Where'd I, where'd I mess up? And, and that teaching that God wants, wants you to be well, you're not well, so you've, you've done something wrong, right? Sometimes God, in his sovereignty, allows sickness, he allows trials, he allows tribulation for your ultimate good to teach you some things, to, to draw you closer to himself, to teach your family members and friends some things. God allows that for his, for his purposes. And so just because someone's sick doesn't mean they did something wrong, right? It could just be God's sovereign plan for their life. And so we need to understand that. Godly people get sick, but we do pray for healing, but we know that what's ultimately most important is spiritual healing, that someone is ready to face their God when they die. Number two. Second thing we learn from the end of Elisha's life. There is no spiritual retirement plan. There's no spiritual retirement plan. Look at what happens in verse 14. Elisha had fallen sick with the illness which he was about to die. So he's, he is at the end of his life. And Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, and he's, he's coming to him, the king's coming to Elisha to get his spiritual help and guidance because the king of Israel was faced with a threat from their rivals in Syria. And so he says, I need some help from God. So who does he go to? He goes to God's representative. He goes to the man of God. He goes to Elisha. So here at the end of his life, Elisha is about to die. He's sick with the illness that would take his life. And you know what Elisha's doing? He's working. He's doing ministry. He's going to teach this king some things about serving God and, and, and spiritual victory and, and the power of God that he needed. And so here at the end of his life, Elisha is working, which are just is a, just a, a good reminder for us all, there's no spiritual retirement plan. God used Elisha's life right up until the end. Don't you like that? Don't you want that for your life? I mean, however long God has for you to live, wouldn't you love to just let God use it just right up to the very end? That's what I want. We need to ask God to make all of our days spiritually productive days. Spiritually productive days. Yeah, I've heard people say before, you know, um, I've served in the church for years and years, and I've done my part. It's time for, it's time for the younger people to step up. Anybody heard someone say that before? Raise your hand. Anybody ever said it? No, don't raise, don't raise your hand. Okay, quick question. Where's that in the Bible? I need to just stop serving. I've done it long enough. It's time for me just to, just to take a break. Where's that in the Bible? Now, the Bible's clear. The older teach the younger. Get them involved in the ministry. Teach them how to do ministry. You know, model ministry. 
make disciples, you know, pour their experience and wisdom into them. That's Titus chapter 2. That should be happening in the lives of the older and the younger, the interaction between the older and the younger. But there is not a verse that says, when you get to a certain age, it's time for you to say, well, I'm, 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 I'm just taking a break for a while. There's, there's no spiritual retirement plan in the Bible. And I love how God used Elisha's life right up until the end. And so let's ask God to make all of our days, however long they are, spiritually productive. That's a great prayer to pray. God, make my days spiritually productive days. Turn over to Psalm 90 with me very quickly. Psalm 90. This is a psalm attributed to Moses. It's the only psalm out of all the 150 psalms that is attributed to Moses, which makes it interesting. And look what it says in Psalm chapter 90. Verse 12, great verse. Moses says, as he talks about the brevity of life, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So here's what Moses is saying. God, if you'll, if you'll remind me and show me that life is brief, it'll help me to live a wiser life in the here and now. Right? If we understand that life is short, we'll live wiser lives. Okay? That's what Moses is saying. And look how Moses prays at the end of this prayer as he thinks about the brevity of life. He says, by the way, verses 16 and 17 are kind of our family verses this year. We're, we're praying these verses as a family. And hey, look, listen to what it says. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. And so Moses says, life is short. Teach us to number our days. Therefore, God... While you've given me life on this earth, show me your power. Show me your glorious power. And, the, and my children, show them your glorious power. What a great prayer to pray. We're praying in 2014 that God would show us as a family his glorious power. It's a good prayer request. Life is short. I want to see God's power. How about you? Look at the next prayer request. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands Upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. That word establish there means to give permanence to. So you know what Moses is saying? He's saying, Lord, life is short. Teach me to number our days. And Lord, the things I do, give permanence to them. Give permanence to the things, the works of my hands. I want what I do to count, to live on beyond my life. And so we need to ask God to make all of our days spiritually productive days. I don't know how many of you saw in November the Billy Graham special. How many of you saw the Billy Graham special that came on? It was remarkable. And by the way, you can watch it online. You can go online and type in Billy Graham. I think the, the, the major episode they showed was called The Cross. And in that special, uh, Billy Graham was not even able to get out of his chair. They were showing clips of him preaching at, at a younger age, but... Uh, for much of the special, he's sitting there in his chair, and it's more of an interview format, and he's sharing his heart about America, and sharing his heart about Jesus, and the cross, and people's need for a Savior, and Jesus being the only way to be saved. And it is just compelling, because you can, it's, you can just see it in his face. You can, you can see it in his eyes. Billy Graham wanted his last moments to count for Jesus. And, and, and what was so powerful about that was that the ethos coming from Billy Graham, his desire to make his life count, to make his life count. Um, Claire and I, were, were, we got kind of a chuckle the other day because um, there was, a, there was a, one of the family members of Billy Graham put out a, a little social media message saying, thank you for praying for, for Dad. Uh, you know, he's, he's doing better. He had a kind of rough bout in the hospital, and, and he's kind of rallied a little bit. And I told Claire, I said, I wonder if Billy Graham's ever like, okay, guys, um, I'm ready to go to heaven. Um, can we back off the prayers for I'm ready to go see my wife, Ruth, in heaven. So, you know, quit praying me back, right? <laughs> I wonder if he ever thinks, I'm ready to go see Jesus. You know, I've done the special. I'm ready, I'm ready to go see I don't know if that's the case or not. He's, I'm, I'm kidding. He's grateful for the prayers. But I'm just so impressed by how he wants his life to count to the very end. And we should want our life to count until the very end. There's no spiritual retirement plan there there are you know i know there's retirement plans from your job and your career and that's good and we need to plan for that but even in that we need to plan to to serve the lord in those years and make a difference in those years no spiritual retirement plan number three 
We need the Lord for victorious living. We need the Lord for victorious living. There's a very interesting story that takes place when this king comes to talk to Elisha. And as I was studying this passage, I kept thinking, I've heard a sermon on this passage before. And I kept thinking, I thought, you know, I've heard Adrian Rogers preach on this passage before. And I began to think where I'd heard Adrian Rogers preach on this passage. So I have an Adrian Rogers cassette series, and I thought maybe it was in that. So I got it, and I looked through it, and it wasn't in that. And I said, where did I hear him preach that message? And, and, and uh, I looked at all the, the, the tape series I've taken from Chad McKnight. I didn't see it in there. Um, kidding, Chad. Um, I, I, looked through, I looked through all these different tape series I have, and finally I thought, you know what? I think it was in my tape cassette, the old cassette days, the cassette series I had from Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. They had a, a cassette series of the best you know, 25 years of the best preaching in mid-America, something like that. And I looked in there, and it was in there. And this was cassette. I had to put it in my, my little stereo in my office, and I, it stopped a couple times. I had to get my finger and roll the, roll the ribbon back in. You know what I mean? I mean, it was a cassette, all right? And uh, I found that sermon, and, and, and I put it in there, and I just had my Bible open, and I listened to preach this passage, and it was just, it was awesome. I'm just telling you, it was incredible. And, and so I wanted to share with you the points from his sermon on this passage, because I'm not going to get any better than those points. I want to just kind of walk you through what he said about this passage. I'm going to make some comments after that. But, but what he said was so, so profound uh, on this passage. First of all, he spoke of the warfare we must expect. This is in your notes. The warfare we must expect. Verse 14, it says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now what's he talking about here? Well, we know from the larger context of the passage that Syria was threatening them and Israel's army was in bad shape. Look back in verse 7. Same chapter, look in verse 7. The Bible says, There was not left to Jehoaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. And so we see here, because of the Syrians, Israel's army had been decimated. And Joash comes to Elisha and says, the, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, we don't have any. And the Syrians are threatening us. It, it's like the king is saying to Elisha, what are we going to do? We don't have an army. We don't have strength. We don't have defenses. What are we going to do? And he there is dealing with the reality of an enemy, the reality of warfare. And Adrian Rogers extrapolates from that that all of us need to understand who our enemy is. We all have an enemy. Just like this king is desperate because he knows he has an enemy, we all need to understand we have an enemy. Who's our, en- who's our enemy? Satan, right? Satan wants to destroy us. First Peter says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Right? I mean, Satan hates your guts. He does. He despises you. He despises your family, your kids. Isn't it just a a chilling thought that Satan hates our kids? He hates them. He wants to take them out. And he hates your marriage, and he hates your church, he hates your pastor. He, He hates us. He's a destroyer. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And, and we should not walk around as if we're not engaged in a battle. The Bible talks clearly of the reality of spiritual warfare. We need to be on guard because Satan is doing his thing. We need to stand in the strength of the Lord. The warfare we must expect. And he, he makes that point in this text. But secondly, Adrian Rogers talked about the weapons we must employ. The weapons we must employ. Look what it says in verse 15. Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Now, the bow and arrow here are highly symbolic. So wait, how do you know these are symbolic? Well, look what it says down in verse 17. He shoots it through a window. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 17, he, he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it, and Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. So this one arrow didn't destroy the Syrian army. It's symbolic, right? He said, this, this arrow symbolizes the victory the Lord's going to give you. That's what this arrow, so, so the bow and the arrow that King Joaz picks up is 
is highly symbolic of the victory of the Lord. And, and we, need to, we need to understand that when we are surrounded by enemies, and we are the, the, the flesh, uh, the devil, the world, when we are bombarded by enemies, we need to, we need to understand we have some weapons too. And, and, and the, these bow, this bow and these arrows represent weapons. We need to have our weapons, employ our weapons in the battle. Now, 2 Corinthians says that the weapons we use in warfare are not carnal weapons. They're not weapons you can see. What kind of weapons do we have in our spiritual battle? Just talk to me for a minute. What kind of weapons do we, do we use to fight Satan? Hear the Word, right? The Bible, what else? Prayer, what else? Holy Spirit lives inside of us, gives us the power. What else? Truth, holiness, uh, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, faith. These are all weapons that we employ. The body of Christ, the church, is a weapon that God gives us to fight the battle. So we need to understand that, that we need to use the weapons God gives us. You know, if we're not walking in the Word and walking with God in prayer daily, we should not be surprised when we live in defeat. Right? Don't be surprised that Satan's having a heyday in our life if we're not using the weapons God gives us. We're not even even fighting the battle. We're just kind of letting Satan chew us up and spit us out. And and the point of this is when you're surrounded by an enemy, you pick up your weapons, right? That's what you do when you're surrounded by an enemy. Listen, the body of Christ in, in America, we need to pick up our weapons. It's time to fight. It's time to get in the, in the Word. It's, it's time to pray. It's time to get together as the body of Christ and have faith and, 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 and trust God and live in holiness and speak truth. It's, t- it's time to take up our weapons. Let me give you a sobering thought. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a couple, couple thoughts. First one comes from Chuck Swindoll. Anybody ever heard Chuck Swindoll preach? He, he, he's okay. Uh, kidding, kidding. Uh, Love Chuck Swindoll. But I heard him talk, one day talking about moral failures in ministry. He was talking about um, you know, pastors and staff members that had a moral failure in their ministry and are no, no longer in the ministry. And he, he talked to several people that he knew well that had, that had stepped into moral failure in, in their ministry. And he just kind of debriefed with them. And he said he found two things in common with each one of these guys that fell from their role in ministry. You know what the two things were? Number one, none of them had a regular devotional time of the Lord. They weren't in the Word. They weren't in prayer. Number two, none of them had any accountability in their life. They didn't have their weapons. They weren't fighting. And, 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 and they fell. So and we, we're all, listen, we're all prone to failure if we're unguarded, right? Every one of us. We've got to pick up our weapons. Here's another thing I read the other day on Twitter. It came from Tom Rainer. And uh, Tom Rainer was talking about this same kind of issue, about moral failure and ministry and things like that. And here's what he said. He said, I've never known anybody that cheated on their wife that read their Bible every day. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? He said, I've never known anyone that committed adultery that was reading their Bible every day. He said, well, that's so simple, it kind of goes without saying. Maybe we need to say it, Right? It's a good thought. Maybe, maybe there's something to take up this weapon. The, I mean, as a matter of fact, over in Ephesians, the Bible calls the, the I mean, the Bible calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit, Word of God. So we need to we need to take up our weapons, the weapons we must employ. Third thing, the weakness we must empower. We see this in the text. Look back in Second Kings with me. So wait, this is really good. Remember, it's not my sermon. Okay, look Second Kings. Chapter 13, verse 16. It says, he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. Now this is, this is powerful. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. What's happening there? Elisha is sick. He's about to die. He's frail. Scholars believe he was probably around, around 80 or 90. He's, he's frail, and yet this king takes up a bow and arrow, and the, 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 the old prophet comes and puts his hand on top of the king's hand. What's he doing there? This is, again, highly symbolic. And as 
God's representative, he's showing the king your weakness because you're surrounded by Syria and you don't have a good army. Your weakness must be covered by God's strength. That's what's happening. That's why the old prophet representing God puts his hand on the king's hand. This is a picture of God's strength enveloping our weakness. Now, keep that in mind and turn to 2 Corinthians 12 with me very quickly. 2 Corinthians 12, New Testament. Second Corinthians 12, look what it says in verse 7. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7, this is Paul writing. He writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. So if you read a little bit earlier up in chapter 12, God had given Paul these wonderful visions of heaven. And Paul said they were so wonderful that I needed to be made humble because if I didn't have someone or something making me humble, I would have gotten puffed up and conceited. So God allowed a messenger of Satan to afflict him to keep him humble. And he says there in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that, this, that it should leave me. Now, what a health and wealth preacher do with this verse? Because he had a thorn in the flesh, he prayed three times to God to remove it, and God didn't remove it. What do you do with that? Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen. Let me keep on. What do you do with that? I mean, he asked three times for healing, and he wasn't healed. So what do you, what do, you do with that? Why didn't he heal him? Why didn't he take it away? And there's a lot of discussion about what the thorn of the flesh was. Some people think it was an eye malady. Um, there's different thoughts about what was troubling him. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But look why God does not heal him in verse 8. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying weakness is wonderful. Because when I'm weak, God shows up with his power. But when I try to do life in my own strength, God will step back and let me do it. Have you found that to be true? If you want to do the Christian life in your own strength, God will stand back and say, try it out, big boy. See how that goes for you. But when you recognize your weakness and you ask and plead and beg for God's power to cover your weakness, God shows up with his power. And his power is, is, is clearly seen through your weakness. So think about it like this. Your strength, the, bre- the best you bring to the table, your intelligence, your physical strength, your good health, your background, your education, your smart, whatever. Whatever you bring to the table, your strength is a liability. God doesn't need your strength. Matter of fact, your strength, if you're not careful, can keep you from depending upon Him. Right? Your strength is a liability, but your weakness is an asset. Wow. Your weakness is an asset. And I believe the king needed to learn that lesson. And so the old, sick prophet places his hand as the representative of God on the hand of this king to say, you need God's power in this moment. You need God's power to envelop your weakness, the weakness that we must empower. Listen, folks, Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. In your own strength, your own wisdom, you're just not going to get the job done. That's why we need to stay close to Jesus and, let, and abide in him so he will bear fruit through our lives. We need his power. Look, look what it says over in Psalm 144. Echoes this same thought. Psalm 
Psalm 144, verse 1, Psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. God's the one that gives me what I need to win the battle. And God is the one that will give you what you need to be victorious in the battle. You can't do it without Him. The weakness we must empower. Here's the next thing. Oh, and this is really good. There's the wholeheartedness we must express. Turn back with me to 2 Kings. Second Kings chapter 13. Look what it says in verse 18. Ver, ver, verse 17. Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window eastward. That was the direction towards Syria. Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So this, this arrow that the king shot symbolized God's victory he was going to give them. It's God's power he was going to give them to defeat the Syrian army. Then he says in verse 18, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him. The King James there says wroth. I like that old English word. He was wroth with him. He was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. You read that and say, Boy, Elisha's being kind of harsh here. He tells him to strike the ground. And he doesn't tell him how many times to strike it. And he strikes the ground three times. And Elisha flies into a rage. No, you shouldn't have stopped with three. You should have gone to... Five or six. Why does he say that? What's going on here? I believe that Joash's heart wasn't in it. Let me show you why. The word in verse 18, see what it says where it says, take the arrows, he took them, he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. Everybody say strike. That same word was used in verse 17. Look what it says in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek. That word fight is the same re- word in the Hebrew. It's the word strike. And again, King James gets this right. I think that King James, who has King James in here? He's the word smote. Smote in verse 17, smote in verse 18. Same word in the Hebrew language. And here's the point. God said this arrow symbolizes you striking the Syrians. So, so strike the arrow on the ground. Again, a symbolic action of how you were going to defeat the Syrians. And it's almost like Joash just kind of goes, tap, tap, tap. And Elisha flies into a rage. Perhaps Joash was half-hearted because he was faint-hearted. But his heart was not in it. He said, you should have, you should have, you should have hit the ground more times, expecting a greater victory over the enemy. I like what A.W. Pink says about this. A.W. Pink writes, most Christians, I want you to hear me on this, this is important. This is in your notes, the quote from A.W. Pink, is that in your notes? Most Christians expect little from God, ask little, and therefore receive little, and are content with little. I want to read that again. Most Christians expect little from God, they ask little, they, they receive little, and are content with little. Could it be that we just live a small faith? We're not asking God, believing God, to do great and mighty things in our life, in our family, in in our church, in our country, in our world. They are content with little faith, little knowledge of the deep things of God, little growth and fruitfulness in the spiritual life, little joy, peace, and assurance. And the zealous servant of God is justified in being wroth, there's that word, at their lack of spiritual ambition. And so Elisha had passionately served the Lord all these years, and now he is incensed that this king did not expect much from God. He was not wholehearted in hitting the arrow, smiting the arrow on the ground. The wholeheartedness we must expect. In that sermon, Adrian Rogers made this point, and it's good. He said, you can be just about as victorious as you want to be. You have all of the victory that you want. Then he said this, God does business with those that mean business. Is that good? God does business with those that mean business. Sometimes we don't experience great victory in our life because we're not asking God to give us great victory. 
We're not depending upon Him for great victory. We're living just small, temporal lives that are making no impact on those around us. Maybe we need to be like Elisha and expect great things from God. In the 1700s, end of the 1700s, there was a, a shoe cobbler named William Carey. And he was a Baptist in England. And he began to study his Bible and saw that there were all these different verses that talked about going and taking the gospel to the nations. Back then they called them the heathen, the gen, the, the gen, those that did not know the Lord. And, and he, started, he started to talk to some other ministers in the area and say, listen, shouldn't we go and tell people about Jesus? And as a matter of fact, there was a meeting of, of pastors in England, and one day uh, he stood up and he said, I think we should take the gospel to the heathen. Take the gospel to, to those that have never heard. And another pastor stood up and said, sit down, young man. If God wants to convert the heathen, he can do it without us. Which is direct contradiction of the Bible where God tells us to go and proclaim, right? And so this man named William Carey, he ended up going. He went to India and planted his life in India. Did great. The impact from William Carey's life is still being felt today in India. It's amazing. He and a couple other men called the Siempore Trio went and planted their lives there and made a great, great impact for the glory of God. But before he left, he's called the father of the modern missions movement. Before he left to go to India, he preached a sermon called the Deathless Sermon. By that he means our life should impact beyond our death. Our impact is not taken away at death. And in the Deathless Sermon, he had just two points. Here are his points. You ready? He said we should expect great things from God. And we should attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. What if we started to live those kind of lives? Expecting God to do great things. Expecting God to give great victories. Attempting great things for His glory. God does business with those that mean business. And Elisha sensed from his demeanor or whatever, he sensed that the king did not mean business. So his, his victory was limited when it could have been great. And so that's the end of Adrian Rogers' sermon on that point, all right? But I want to share that with you. We need the Lord for victorious living. And even at the end of his life, Elisha is teaching this lesson to the king and ultimately to the people of Israel and even to us today. We need the Lord for victorious living. Everybody got that? Now let's look at one more section and, and we're going we're gonna to close down. Two more points. Number four, the Lord sets apart the godly man for himself or godly woman, whatever the case may be. The Lord sets apart the godly man, godly woman for himself. Now, after this encounter with the king, something really, really fascinating happens. Look what it says in verse 20. By the way, you know we canceled church last week because of the threat. It wasn't too bad, but uh, we probably could have had church, but you know we are worried about a little bit of precipitation, icing back over, and people falling on sidewalks and things like that. So we, it's always better to be safe than sorry. And so we canceled. But I was really disappointed because I want to come and preach this passage to you. So I've been sitting on it all week, all right? Verse 20 says, Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as the man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. So these folks are burying a man. Here come these band of raiders, and they don't have time to give him proper burial, so they just throw him in the grave, the same grave where Elisha was buried. What happens next? As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Are you kidding me? That's an incredible story, right? I mean, what's that all about? Elisha's a dead man laying there in the tomb, Another dead man touches his bones and pops back up, comes to life. I mean, what is going on there? So I've been thinking now for two weeks, what is that story all about? I mean, it happened. The Bible says it happened. It truly it happened. So what, what, why did God do that? Why did God give life to this man that touched Elisha's bones? I think one of the reasons is he was showing the watching world that Elisha was an anointed man of God. His hand was on Elisha's life. And as just kind of a, just one more reminder, <laughs> a dead man touches bones and comes back to life. God, I believe, wants uh, us to see the principle here 
that God sets apart the godly man for himself. Elisha is an example of how mightily God can bless and use a person for his glory. It's as if God's saying, see what I can do through a life that's consecrated to me? See what I can do through a man of God, a a holy man, a, a courageous man, a man of truth? See what I can do? I can even bring dead men back to life after the man's dead. I think it's an illustration of Psalm. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. Verse 3, this is again a Psalm of David. Good verse to mark in your Bible, highlight, underline, whatever you do. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. God has special, something special for those whose hearts are completely his. Over in Second Chronicles, it says that the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro throughout the earth, searching for someone whose hearts are completely his. Second Chronicles chapter 16. And so we see here God just illustrating that. I want to show you how my hand was on Elisha's life. I, I, my power was on Elisha to such a degree that even after he was dead, people touched his bones and came to life. That's how consecrated Elisha was to me. Elisha is an example of how mightily God can bless and use a person for his glory. And so I believe what this, this passage ought to do for you and for me is it ought, to, it ought to give us a thirst to be that kind of person. I mean, don't you want to be like Elisha? Set apart to God, courageous, living for his glory, and let God work, let, letting God work pow, powerful things through your life Mighty things through your life. Don't you want to be, don't, listen, don't you want God's hand on you like that? I believe God will do that today. That he will specially, some people use the word anoint, he will specially anoint or empower those whose hearts are completely his. And he'll do things through a, a wholehearted person that can't be explained. And make a difference that outlives a life. I want to be one of those one of those people. And we study something like 2 Kings, we ought to say, we ought to say, I want to be one of those people. I want to be like Elisha. I want to be set apart to God. I believe that's one of the reasons we see this miracle. But there's, a, there's, a, there's another reason we see this miracle, and this leads us to number five, and, and here's where we'll end. I think this miracle also illustrates that, that no one is indispensable. Elisha was a great man of God, but notice, even though he's dead, God's still at work, right? Did Elisha raise the man from the dead that touched his bones? No, you know why we know that? Because Elisha was dead, right? He didn't do it. Who raised the man from the dead? God did. Why did God do that? I believe that God is illustrating there in 2 Kings Listen, Elisha, the man of God, my representative, he's gone, but I'm still working. I'm still around. I'm still working in power. Here's what we need to understand if you look there, number five. Great servants of God come and go, but God is always there. Great servants of God come and go. God is always there. Listen, no one is indispensable. God doesn't need any of us. Can I get amen on that? Some people act like they're you know, they are indispensable to the work of God or the working of a church. No, God doesn't need any of us. He simply, by His grace, allows us to, to get in the game with Him, to serve Him in His kingdom, right? He doesn't need us. He allows us, by His grace, to, to, be, to, to be in mission, in concert with what He's doing in the world. No one is indispensable. We need to learn that lesson. And I think the people of Israel need to be reminded, even though Elisha's dead, power of God's still here. God's still working. God is always there. And listen to me, God will raise up new godly leaders. We have to trust God to raise up new godly leaders. And I believe, going back to number four, that we ought to want to be those new godly leaders. God used my life. 
Take my life. Use my life to do great and mighty things. William Carey was a, a shoe cobbler. If we were picking a, a missionary to go and change the continent or subcontinent of India, we probably wouldn't have said, let's, let's pick William Carey. But he was consecrated to the Lord, and the Lord raised him up and used his life. God will raise up new godly leaders. A few years ago, uh, I went through a time where I just was, I was just a little discouraged um, because it was, a, it was a season in, in Christianity where some of the giants of the faith were stepping into eternity. Uh, I mentioned Adrian Rogers. You know he's one of my heroes, but also, uh, and he passed away. Bill Bright, I don't know if you knew who Bill Bright uh, was. He was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and I had the, the privilege of, of working with Campus Crusade through a summer between uh, semesters in college, and I got to meet Bill Bright and his wife, Vonette, and he's just a, he was a great visionary man of God, a heart for the lost, a, a huge visionary faith, and he had a heart to, to reach the world. He's a great commission leader, and I was around Bill Bright, but Bill Bright passed away. And it's just a time, you know, Billy Graham is now in, 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 you know, in his 90s, and, and his health is not well, and you just look on the scene, on the landscape, and all these great godly leaders uh, are, are, are passing off the scene. And it's important to remember, hey, God's still there. But we want God to raise up some others to take their place, right? To take their place. Men and women of God that mean business. And uh, what I want you to understand tonight, here's what I want you to walk away with. If you'll love God with all your heart, you can be one of those people. I mean, to, 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 to change the world. Really. But no one's indispensable. No one's indispensable. And it's important to remember that we need God's power. So, just some thoughts about the power of a godly life. Godly people get sick. There's no spiritual retirement plan. We need the Lord for victorious living. The Lord sets apart the godly person for himself, and no one is indispensable. Boy, Elisha had a fascinating life. A fascinating life. And I pray we would learn from that life.